We are in Leviticus chapter 20. If you would turn with me over to Leviticus chapter 20. We're going to be in chapter 20 and 21 as we're traveling through Leviticus, going through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together. We don't take it for granted. It's, it's a joy to see one another. Lord, we're also thankful for the ability to have online services and those worship with us online. We thank you for the comfort of your presence. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with us and, and in us. We ask tonight as we study the law that we would also be reminded of your grace. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you bestow upon us on a daily basis and that we could grow in the understanding of that grace. So may we be rooted and grounded in your love. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if I was picking a topical message, it probably wouldn't come from Leviticus 20 and 21. If it wasn't for going through uh, the Bible, I'd probably never teach on this section of scripture. But it's so valuable as we read these two chapters because we see the penalty of the law. We know from the book of Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. And it's easy for us to kind of hear that and for it not to sink in. But the reality of the law is if you break the law, you deserve death. You're gonna find, as we read through this, that there's something in here for all of us that would result in capital punishment for us. And there's a section in here, if you uh, dishonor your parents, you were to be killed. I would not have seen 13. I would not have made it, right? But we see God's holy standard represented in the law and in Galatians, it tells us the law is a schoolmaster and it drives us to Christ. It causes us to see our need for Jesus to be our savior. Without the law, we would tend to think, God, why do you have to give me your son? Just give me a set of rules and I can follow it. I think that I'm good enough, I'm, I'm moral enough. But when the law is in front of us, it shows us how much that we need Christ to be our savior. It shows us the perfection of Christ that he was able to live in this life without sin, to fulfill these laws perfectly to where he's the perfect sacrifice for our sin. So as we look at the law tonight, we're also reminded at the depth of God's grace. Verse one, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. This practice of pagan worship, of offering up your kids to the false god Molech, and here God's saying, if anyone sacrifices their children on the altar of Moloch, they themselves should be killed. They themselves should be punished with death. And this shows God honoring and protecting human life. 
God protecting these children so that they would not be sacrificed to this false god of, of Molech. And we too have the potential and the propensity to, to sacrifice our kids for our own benefit. They were sacrificing their children with this idea that it would bring them financial prosperity. And so God is defending the kids here and defending the weak and saying, no one should sacrifice their children. In verse four, and if the people of the land should be any way hit, hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man, against his family, and will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. So it's all connected with worship, all connected with idolatry. And for those that would cover up a family member, so let's say you, your brother offers up one of his kids to Molech and you know about it and you don't hold your brother accountable, then you too are sharing the guilt. You too share in the responsibility. And this shows us that we're not to cover and hide sin, but to confront one another in love and confront one another in, in humility. In verse six, and the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Don't open the door to witchcraft. Don't open the door up to the enemy in that way. Here's the principle. Here's what God is calling the children of Israel to. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for the fact that Jesus did die for our sins. If, if all we had was Leviticus 20, I'm holy, so keep my statutes. I'm holy, so keep my word. There's nothing wrong with that message from God's perspective. He is holy, and it's a just command. The problem is with my sin. The problem is with, with our sin, and we fall short, and thankfully it's the holiness of God as Jesus died on the cross for our sins, removes our sins from us, removes that handwriting that was against us, that we're able to be in right standing with the Lord, that we're able to have God's favor and his forgiveness. And out of that place of grace, we get to consecrate ourselves. We, we get to be living sacrifices unto the Lord. And verse nine, for everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood shall be upon him. This would be difficult to implement as the parents, right? Your child comes against you and curses you and you're like, okay, out to the stone pile for you, right? The wages of sin is death. This is heavy. This is, this is difficult. I know it's hard to imagine, but I was not an easy child to raise. And I had quite the temper and quite the, the firecracker and like to push the boundaries in every way possible that I that I could think of, you know? And I was a lot for my, my parents to, to handle and they did a good job of pointing me to the Lord and God was, God was gracious, but this is very clear, you know? I did curse my, my parents. I, I did speak out against my parents and rebel against my, my parents and according to the law, it would have been capital punishment. 
The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Shows God's value on sexual integrity. How much God cherishes the union between a husband and a wife and, and what's breached when there is adultery. And adultery brings death. We think of the woman who was caught in adultery, and we'll look at this more at the end of the study. By the law, she should have been stoned, but instead of Jesus stoning her, Christ offered forgiveness to her. But the law, when it comes to adultery, if it wasn't for grace, there would be capital punishment. Verse 11, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. This is a really contested issue when it comes to God's word is homosexuality. There's not tested on adultery. You know, when people talk about God's standard for sexuality, you don't see people saying, well, well, God condones adultery as long as you love each other. If you love each other, then you can cheat on your spouse and, and God's good with it because he's a, a God of love. And homosexuality is wrong just like adultery is wrong, just like cursing your father or mother is wrong, just like getting involved with witchcraft is wrong. This is not just a teaching in the Old Testament. This is a teaching that runs throughout Scripture from the beginning of Genesis when God created Adam and Eve. He created them male and female. As we get into the New Testament, God's message on sexuality is, is consistent. And so we do see God's heart being communicated for sexual integrity in all ways as we go through our text this evening. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among them. Who wants to marry a woman and her mom? <laughs> a mother-in-law is enough, amen? Right, guys? <laughs> Let alone to marry a woman and her mother. So if someone does that, then under the law, they were to be burned. If a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. It's amazing how specific God has to be in this chapter. But he knows the hearts of man and, and the perversion that is inside of us. If a man takes his sister his father's daughter or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. We covered this in detail in two studies ago of God's heart for the sacredness of nakedness and nakedness being shared inside of the commitment of marriage. We live in a culture where nakedness is exposed, pornography. The world says this is no big deal, but God says it's a, it's a big deal. 
And we should have that heart of, of serving and protecting one another, not exposing one another and, and defiling one another. Verse 18, if a man lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he has exposed her flow and she shall and, and she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. So according to the law, married couples not having intimacy during the wife's period. Verse 19, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near of kin. They shall bear their guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered the uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin, they shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it's an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. Verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and my judgments and perform them that the land where I'm bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. Several times God mentions this that the land gets to a place where it vomits you out because of, of wickedness. That the wickedness is so great that it's not sustainable for a culture. The, the, the culture just begins to, to unravel and God brings his just judgment upon that, that culture. And we've gotta ask the question for the United States of America, when do we get to the point where the land just vomits us out? Where we reap what we sow, we reap the wickedness that we have uh, committed. There's great need for repentance. There's great need to know who Christ is and his grace and the gospel that calls us out of darkness and, and into to light. But God has been consistent of his, his message throughout uh, the ages. Verse 23, and you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I'm casting out before you for they have committed all these things and therefore I abhor them. The Canaanites God's judging the Canaanites for their wickedness. And God's saying, I don't want you to walk in the statutes of the Canaanites. God calls us to not be conformed to this world. We don't take our marching orders from what the world is doing. We take our marching order from God's word. And there's this constant message that's being bombarded upon us. And we have to reject that and embrace who God is and embrace the truth of, of scripture. In verse 24, but I've said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. For I'm the Lord your God who has separated you from the people. So as they enter into the promised land, they're to be separated unto the Lord. They're to walk with the Lord. One of the ways that separated the nation of Israel was their diet in verse 25 and 26. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make for yourself abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I've separated from you as unclean, and you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. One of the ways that separates the children of Israel was by worshiping the Lord in this kosher diet that God gave to them. One of the reasons that God gave it to them is so that they would stand out, they're marked that they belong to the Lord. If you have food allergies or severe food allergies, don't you stand out because of that? And sometimes it's uncomfortable, but you're like, I would love to eat that, but if I were to eat that, I'd get really sick. 
So, so I got to make sure that I don't eat it. And, and it just sets you apart. It's not good or bad. It's just what it is. You've, you've got a food allergy. Could you imagine on this kosher diet, as they're hanging out with non-Israelites, they're like, sorry, we don't do pork. Hey, why don't you do, do pork? It's, it tastes so good. Well, God called us not to eat pork. And if you have questions about this under the new covenant, we're not required by the law to eat a kosher diet. If you felt led to do that, you have the freedom to do that, but you also have the freedom not to as well. A man or woman who is a medium or has a familiar spirit shall be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. In chapter 21, it shifts gears a little bit to look at God's standard for the priests. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, none shall defile himself from the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has no husband, for her he may defile himself, otherwise he shall not defile himself being a chief man among his people to profane himself. So God didn't want the priests touching the dead, which is an interesting command that he gives to them unless it was immediate family. And this is one of the ways that the priests were set apart in their service unto the Lord. In verse 15, they shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. So when I go get a haircut, I get a number one faded up high, I'd be disqualified from being a priest, right? They weren't to do that. They weren't to shave their heads. It was another way in their physical appearance that they were set apart unto the Lord. Verse six, they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for, their, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. The priests ultimately point to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's the perfect priest. And as these priests are, are set apart, it's nothing compared to Christ and his holiness and him being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse seven, they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I am the Lord who sanctify you and holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with, with fire. You know, you read something like this, and if you go, man, I, I was divorced or sexual sin has been part of my past or one of my children struggle. Does this communicate that I can't serve the Lord? Does this communicate that God doesn't have a, a plan for me? And, and remember, we're reading the law. We're, we're reading God's standard here and God's standard is right. But thankfully, Jesus did go to the cross for us and Jesus died for our sexual sin. And he died for divorce. And some of you have gone through divorces where it was never your desire. You, 
You were faithful and you wanted the marriage to work, but others, you look back at a time of your past and, and you chose, chose divorce and you're going, is there grace for me? And yes, there is. As we turn to the Lord in brokenness, there, there, is, there is grace. One of the deepest pains, I think, that parents have that walk with the Lord is if their child falls away from the Lord, chooses not to believe. You can't choose for your kids. We know this, we share this. God doesn't let anybody in heaven because your parents believed or your grandparents believed. Each child gets their own choice and each child gets to choose whether they trust and and walk with the Lord. And so this high standard, it points us to the need for God's grace. In verse 11, he who is the high priest among his brethren or who's head the anointing oil was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garments shall not cover his head nor tear his clothes. So the priest wasn't to cover his head or tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body nor defile himself for his father or his mother, nor shall he go into the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him, I am the Lord." So the priest was to be set apart, to be living differently because of this calling of serving in the tabernacle and receiving the anointing that God had, had placed in his life. I, I do think that there's a principle here, not for salvation, not for, for God's favor, but as God works his grace in our lives, the Lord may call you to a higher standard because he wants to use your life. He, he wants your life to be set apart for service. And you go, you know, I'm willing to, to give this up because the Lord's calling me to this. Or, or this is not necessarily sinful, but I know that if I lay this down, this is gonna give me a, a greater opportunity to share the love of Christ uh, with others. And that's what we see in this lesson with the priests is they were being called to a higher standard because of the service that God was, was calling them into. Verse 13, and he shall take a wife and her virginity and a, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled or a harlot, these he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as a wife. Nor shall he profane his pro- posterity among his people, for I am the Lord, sanctify him. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your descendants in seceding generations who has a defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a blind or lame who has a maimed face or a limb too long. So we're gonna go through this list. If you have any of these physical defects it defiles you from being a priest. You're, you're disqualified. If you have a marred face, if you've got one limb too long, it's like, oh, my right arm is longer than my left arm. Sorry, no priestly duty for you. A man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or is hunched back or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or as a eunuch, no man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. 
he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect. Lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I in the, I, the Lord sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. When I was going through school ministry, they had us read a book called Lecture to My Students by Charles Spurgeon, and it's a really good book. But he has this one chapter in this book where, where he uses this section of scripture to talk about some of the physical requirements that he had for men who wanted to be pastors. And I remember one of the things that he said, if you didn't weigh a certain amount, that you couldn't be a pastor because your voice would not be projected loud enough for people to be able to hear. You know, and I'm reading this as just a skinny guy that's gotta run around to get wet in the shower. And I'm like, if I would have lived in that time, in Charles Spurgeon's school of ministry, I would have been disqualified for service because I didn't weigh enough, right? Thankfully, in the new covenant of God's grace, God says that he uses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. Under the law, under the standard of the law, if you had a physical defect, sorry, you're out. You, you can't be a priest. You've got a broken arm. You've got a defect eye. All of these different things that are, are listed here. But what we see in Christ is Christ died for our defect. He died for, for our sin. And God loves actually using our weaknesses for his glory. When the world looks at us and says, hey, you don't really look right. Or there's something a little bit odd about you would disqualify us. Something on our resume that would make somebody say, well, I'm not gonna necessarily give you an opportunity, then the Lord, he goes, you're exactly the person that I want to use. So is there an area of weakness, even something about your physical appearance that you feel like has disqualified you from the Lord? And to put that in context of the blood of Jesus, to put that in context of Jesus dying for our sins and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, when we look at who Jesus chose to be his 12 disciples, he did not pick the best looking and the most educated. He did not go to the local seminary where you would think this is where guys would be chosen to be his disciples. He went to the Sea of Galilee and picked some stinky fishermen. To the point where in the book of Acts, when they heard the disciples teach, they said, we can tell that they're untrained. They haven't had the formal education, but this, they had been with Jesus. That's the most important thing. Have you been with Jesus? Not what your educational background is, not what your physical looks are. I wonder if we were spending time with the disciples, how many of them we would have just discounted. Not to mention Matthew, the tax collector. He's a Jew. He's a Levite. He's supposed to be serving in the temple, but instead he's working for the Roman Empire as a traitor, collecting taxes. How do you think people thought of Matthew when all of a sudden he started following Jesus? 
Like, Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure you're gonna let that guy be one of your disciples? Matthew's not very good for your reputation. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of, of broken people that responded to his message of grace and truth where if we were there spending time with Jesus, we would go, wow, I'm not so sure about this group. They're weak, they're foolish. And that's exactly who God uses for his glory. I would suggest to you, our strengths more often than not can disqualify us from service because we're relying on ourselves and it causes us to be, be prideful. And many times, it's our weaknesses that qualify us. So don't think you've gotta have your act together. Don't think, well, I don't fit the mold. Well, what's the mold anyway? Thankfully, we don't live under the law, we live under the new covenant of God's grace. Examine something with me for a few more moments, and I wanna look at a few passages in the New Testament. Two mountains. You've got Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Calvary, where Jesus died upon the cross. And both mountains are hugely significant. God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, communicates to him the law, the standards, the Ten Commandments, even writes the Ten Commandments with his own finger. The requirement of living on Mount Sinai is if you do, you're blessed. If you don't do, you're cursed. To the point where Mount Gerizim, and I can't remember the name of the other mountain right now. Say it louder. Ebal. Is the blessings and the cursings were read. So if you obeyed, you were blessed. If you disobeyed, you were cursed. And this is the nature of a law-based relationship with God. And it's very easy for us, even as believers on the new covenant of God's grace, to have much more of a legalistic, rules-based relationship with God. Where what we really believe is, if we work hard, then God brings blessing. But if we disobey, then God brings cursing. And we gravitate towards that, and we teach that to others. We share, man, if you want blessing in your marriage, then these are all the things you have to do. If you want blessing on your children, these are all the things you have to do. And that only goes so far with God because we're always gonna fall short. Man, we might fulfill a portion of that for some period of time, but we're gonna fall short. And sometimes we even create our own system of law and our own system of rules. It's really a crumbs relationship with God that's based on our own works and, and our own merit. Then we've got Mount Calvary. And when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and Isaac was a picture of Jesus, he said, to a mountain I will show you. And he went to Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah, the ridge there, the, the temple, the temple mount, and leading to then where Christ was crucified, Christ was also crucified on this same mountain ridge, Mount Moriah. God specifically picked Mount, mount Calvary. And Jesus died for our sins. And how are we saved? Are we saved by the law? We're saved by grace. 
For those of us that know Christ as our Savior, if you choose to have a relationship with Christ, there's only one way to be saved, and that's a free gift of grace. When you got saved, you realized you're a sinner. You realized you're broken. You realized I've fallen short of God's perfection, but you also realized, man, God loves me. God gave his son for me. He died on the cross for me. He rose again. I'm trusting in what Jesus did on Mount Calvary. But why do we leave Calvary to go to Sinai? Why do we go, well, well, God's grace saved me. Now I've got to do the rest on my own. When in reality, we know God continues to be gracious to us every day. Like if God were to judge me today for my sins, my heart, my attitude, I'd be toast. I'd be done for before the Lord. It's humbling to think if we took all of our sin just from today, and put it up on these big screens to start the service. And it's getting broadcast on the World Wide Web, live stream. Here's Rocky Mountain Calvary. We would all be on our knees before the Lord going, God, please be gracious to me. I'm so humbled that my sin is being exposed in in that way. And so for us to continue to be in a place where we rely upon God's grace, where we rely upon the finished work of Christ. In Colossians, it tells us, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. Well, how did you receive him? In humility, in brokenness, in faith. To come before the Lord in humility, brokenness, in faith, saying, God, I'm not trying to earn or deserve breakthrough in my life. I'm not trying to merit this. This isn't some type of employee-employer relationship, but I'm trusting in your goodness. God, would you be gracious to my marriage? Would you, would you be gracious to my kids? Would you be gracious to help me understand you in a greater way? And I think a lot of times we're afraid to live in the grace of God because we're under this idea if we really lived in God's grace that that somehow is gonna justify a sinful life. And I hope that you're not hearing that tonight. Because living in God's grace, I believe, is gonna result in a much more love-filled relationship with God. It's actually gonna result in more holiness in our lives because it's his love, it's his favor, it's his grace. It, It transforms us from the inside out. It empowers us to be able to live a life that that glorifies God. The grace of God really teaches us and the grace of God really moves us. Turn with me to John chapter eight and we see a woman who is busted by the law, busted by Mount Calvary and she's, or Mount Sinai, excuse me, and she's moved to God's grace. She's moved to Mount Calvary. So this is John chapter eight, verse one. But Jesus went to Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I've always wondered where's the dude The last time I checked, it takes two to commit adultery. And they say they've caught this woman in the very act. 
but it's only the woman that, that is brought. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? So this comes from what we read tonight in Leviticus. If you can admit adultery, you should be killed. You should be stoned. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. This is hugely significant because the hand of God writes the Ten Commandments. The hand of God writes this holy standard in which this woman was held accountable. But it's not the last time that God writes. He wrote the law, but he also writes grace. And here, Jesus, the advocate, is writing on the ground in defense of this woman. Isn't that beautiful? So the law condemns us, but our gracious, loving Savior writes down a defense on our behalf. Only grace, only grace would do this. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, who is without sin among you? Let him throw a stone at her first. So, so which one of you guys is without sin? You th throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Jesus clears her accusers. We don't know what he wrote on the ground, but we can deduct some things because they left an order from the oldest to the youngest. Did Jesus start with the oldest and write something down on the ground and wrote a location? And that guy, that oldest guy goes, I'm busted. I can't hide, I gotta go. Then he looks at the next oldest and just writes down a name, just a name of somebody. He's like, okay, that's it, I'm, I'm out. And goes through this whole group of scribes and Pharisees that are so squeaky clean on the outside. As they brought this woman in adultery, no doubt it's in a place of pride. Like, look at her, she's caught in adultery. And look at me, I've, I've got my, my act together. And they were humbled. Our gracious Savior clears our accusers. Who's our accusers that come against us? Satan comes against us. We accuse and condemn ourselves. There's others that, that come against us, but Jesus is our advocate. So now it's just this woman and Jesus. And when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, under the law, Jesus should have stoned her. Jesus is without sin. He asked the question, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. He's the only one that's worthy to be able to do that. In his position of just judgment, he could have stoned this woman. But hear those words. Neither do I condemn you. When it should have been judgment, where it should have been consequence, where it should have been death, Jesus offers forgiveness, acceptance, 
restoration? Why? How could he? Because he knew what he was going to do on the cross. He knew that he was going to take the punishment for this woman upon the cross. All of the things that we have done wrong, according to God's holy standard, does deserve punishment. It does deserve death. And Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for our sin and took that judgment upon himself. So neither do I condemn you. We need to hear that tonight. Because it's so easy for the voice of condemnation to come over our lives. And we read sections like Leviticus 20 and 21 and all we do is feel the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. It needs to point us to the forgiveness of God. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm sure this woman felt as though she had a new lease on life. I'm sure she probably thought, I'm a dead woman. She's committing adultery. She's married to somebody. She may have kids. She's somebody's daughter, right? She's got nieces and nephews. She's got a daily life. And she's thinking, that's it. I'm going to be killed. But instead, she's forgiven and she's able to go back to her husband and go back to her kids and go your way and sin no more. That's the grace of God that forgives us and transforms us and sets us free from our sin in a way that the law never could. Last section of scripture, turn with me to Galatians 3, verse 13, and then we'll be done. Galatians 3, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we're dead, we're busted, we're we're broken, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Not some, but all your trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's powerful. The handwriting that's against us, the law that indicts us. Jesus takes that, those requirements, and he's wiped them out, and he nailed it to the cross, and he received that punishment for our sins to where we could be justified It's a legal term where we're declared righteous. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He appeases the the wrath of God. Now notice the, the victory that happens in our lives. It says, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. The demonic realm, Satan, now has no accusation against us. No voice of condemnation against us because Christ has forgiven us. The blood of Jesus has wiped out that handwriting against us. So tonight, come to the communion table and come afresh to God's grace. Come afresh to God's throne room and go, Lord, this is the area of my life that is broken with sin. And I'm remembering you. Communion is that we're to remember Jesus' broken body. We're to remember his shed blood, that he was broken for my sin where his blood was shed for my sin. And then ask the Lord to be gracious in this area of brokenness. Ask the Lord to do a work in your family and and in your marriage and bring breakthroughs in your life that's one of grace. Lord, I can't do this on my own. 
and really sit in and receive his love. Jesus loved this woman who was caught in adultery. It was his love that compelled him to be her advocate. It was his love that drove him to go to the cross to die for for her sins. And it's Christ's love for us that moved him to go to the cross. And maybe it's been a, a while since you have enjoyed and rejoiced in the forgiveness of God that all of your trespasses are forgiven. All of them. All of them. And examine this question. Do I have a law-based relationship with God? Or do I have a grace-based relationship with God? Enjoy the grace of God and then be moved by the grace of God. Respond to the grace of God. Worship the Lord in that place of forgiveness and in that place of acceptance. The law points us to the grace of God. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we do thank you for your grace. We're, we're the woman caught in adultery. We're busted on our sin. The law indicts us. It's not a light thing that you, Jesus, would go to the cross for our sin and take the punishment for our sin so that the handwriting against us could be removed and we could be forgiven. And we bring to you our brokenness. We, we bring to you our sin and our guilt and our shame and desire for your blood to wash us afresh. We celebrate communion tonight in remembrance of you. And would you teach us how to live under grace, to not live under the law, to not be in a place where we're trying to earn or deserve your favor. So would you bless this time of communion in Jesus' name, amen.